think most of you'd be able to finish this um, if all I said was December 7th, 1941. A date which will live in infamy. And as FDR himself, uh, as he gave that speech, went to say that before that day, before December 7th, the United States was at peace with the empire of Japan, even going so far as to say that they had been actively working with the emperor and his government toward maintaining peace in the Pacific. Uh, And also of note at the time that the United States was passive-aggressively, yes, but sitting on the sidelines of the war that was going on in Europe. But after December 7th, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, history was never the same. Nothing was ever the same. Everything changed after December 7th, 1941. The U.S. was no longer at peace with Japan, but at war. The U.S. would no longer sit on the sidelines of World War II, but they would now engage in it Fully, And they would send all their young men, both to Europe and to the Pacific, to fight those wars. And they would not stop until the wars were over and until the wars were won. And that is how history uh, went. After December 7th, 1941, as it comes to what your textbooks describe as World War II, nothing was ever the same. Everything changed. Sometimes, sometimes things happen. Good or bad, on a grand scale, on an individual scale. Things happen, maybe you learn something new, maybe something happens to you, whatever it may be. Sometimes things happen and it changes everything. What Paul is going to tell us tonight is that there's something true in the gospel that if it's really true and if you really believe it, it changes everything. Everything. If you've been with us this whole semester, you'll realize that compared to the end of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 and the beginning that we'll see tonight of chapter 3, this really is good news. So if you would, if you have your Bibles, read with me, or if you have your handout, let's read together in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Before I do that, let me pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. I thank you for your word. I thank you that I do not stand here with my truth, but with your truth. Father, we know that you can strike straight blows with crooked sticks, and I ask that you would do that tonight as I speak, as we read, as we meditate upon the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's read here in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes. Of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is God's Word for us tonight. I got three things for you, three things to try to make sense and, or make simplify what is uh, a very packed passage. And the first one, they all have to deal with righteousness. We've been talking about from the very beginning of this letter that Paul has big news that he's not ashamed of about what, it's, what it means to be right with God. And now he's arrived at it. And the first thing that he really wants to drive home as he sums up everything he said to this point is an impotent righteousness. There's a righteousness that we tend to lean on, that we tend to look to, and it is impotent. It is powerless. It cannot do anything to make us right with God. And this is what he's driving home in verses 9 through 20. I'm going to do a magic trick. Do you like magic tricks? I'm about to fit into five minutes something I was going to do in 30 minutes three weeks ago. So here we go. Magic trick time. Remember the flow of the letter to this point. Paul has big news. He's not ashamed of what it means to be right with God. There's a righteousness revealed in the gospel, he told us in Romans 1.17. But, as soon as he says that, he turns around and says, but God's wrath is revealed. His righteousness is revealed in the gospel, but his wrath is revealed because we are not righteous. And the first thing he said in, in Romans 1.18 and following was that, that God's wrath is revealed against the ungodly or the irreligious who forsake God and they forsake his righteousness. But then as quickly as he says that, in chapter 2 he turns around, he says, but it's the same Godly, supposed godly, the religious who forsake God's righteousness because they are self-righteous. And so he sums it up here in, in this part of the chapter, the beginning, first half of our passage by saying, so no one is better off than the other because we're all under sin. And now look at verses 10 through 18. Paul, to back up his case, he cites a bunch of different verses from the Old Testament, and we think to ourselves, wait a minute. Okay, I get the point that Paul's trying to make, but we
agree with you. And I would also say that's not the point Paul's trying to make. But we're not all this bad. I would agree with you. There are plenty of people who do good, Christian and not. There are plenty of people who try not to speak evil, Christian and not. There are plenty of people who try and seek justice in the world, Christian and not, who try to seek peace, who try to seek God or some conception of God. And suffice to say, I don't have time to break it all down, but look at verse 20. To frame the point that Paul is trying to make, we see it in verse 20. For by works of the law will no human being be justified in his sight. By works, by our effort, by our seeking, by our doing, by our speaking, by our willing, by our talking, we will not be made right with God. No one does good, meaning no one can do anything good that will make them right with God. No one seeks God. No one seeks God in a way that will make them right with God. That is Paul's point. We are all under sin, which means, the next thing he says, no one is righteous. Because we are all under sin, because there's not one square inch of our being that sin has not touched, that means that there's not one thing that we can do to improve our standing with God. Whether we're irreligious, blatantly irreligious, or whether we're self-righteous and religious, our minds, our wills, our deeds, our speech, our relationship, and our motives are all under sin. That's what Paul's saying. So nothing we can do or be will make us righteous, will improve our standing with God. That's why Paul summarized it all in verse 20 by saying, nothing we do, no works, will justify us in God's sight. Helpful illustration, I thought, just to kind of sum up this whole first part that, again, magic trick, 30 minutes I'm shoving into five. Um, but I thought this was a pretty good illustration of the point Paul's trying to make. If righteousness with God is swimming from Honolulu, Hawaii to Tokyo, Japan, just under 4,000 miles, this is what the point Paul's trying to make. Three people try to make that swim. The first one has never swam a day in their life, and so they make it about 10 meters before they drown, right? The next person's kind of average, average shape, average height, average um, whatever. Um, they make it half a mile, and they drown. But then they get that 67-year-old woman who swam uh, from Cuba to Florida, and it was like 140 miles, right? She going to do it. She makes it, once again, 140 miles. She drowns, right? Here's the thing. Who would say that there were different degrees of being drowned, right? If all drowned, all drowned. That's kind of the point that Paul's trying to make, and that's just the, the quickest, smallest, biggest nutshell I can put it in uh, for you, that we all have this conception of needing and wanting and trying to be right. But we can't do it. And it doesn't matter to what degree we do it. We can't do it. And so we are all the same. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. No one's better off. And here it is. Whether Christian or not, all of us, all of this, all of us prove this struggle and prove this reality in all of our struggles with justification. We all struggle, whether you're a Christian or not, even know it's a 
the Christian term means or not. We all struggle with justification. How much of what you have done this week or have planned to do this week has to do with you justifying your existence? Why have you gotten out of bed this week? Why have you gone to classes that you don't want to be in, done homework that you don't want to do, showed up at meetings at student organizations that you don't want to be a part of, but they look good on your resume? Why have you done all those things? Because you want to prove to yourself or to someone else that what you're doing here and during this time of the thing we call college is worth something. That it will at least get you a job or whatever, right? Why is it any social activity, anytime you're in mixed company, you're constantly scanning the room, measuring people up? And why is it you're constantly looking for that attractive person that might just reciprocate the look? Why do we do that? Because you're longing for someone who will reciprocate, that will make you feel special or wanted or care about. That's just two simple things. Career and spouse, right? Two simple things that you probably face every single day, every single week while you're at college. Ways in which you see your soul's search to be justified. There's this longing in all of us to know that we count for something. And we are all looking to something to make us feel that we count for something. I don't know if you saw the movie Creed. It's like the bajillion, not, not the band Creed, the movie Creed. Um, that uh, is like the bajillionth Rocky movie that just came out. It was really good. You need to see it. Um, if Sylvester Stallone wins an Oscar, I won't be surprised. He was really good. Um, yo, Adrian, she wasn't in the movie. Um, but in Creed, Michael B. Jordan, the actor, he plays, he's the main character. He plays Adonis Johnson, who is the illegitimate child of the deceased great boxing champ, Apollo Creed. And so the whole movie is about Adonis Johnson. He gets into boxing, and he's really good, and he knows who his father is. He was an illegitimate child, but he knows who his father is. And so there's this tension, the whole movie, of where Adonis wants to live up to his father's name, right? The name that he inherited because he's his father. But the tension that he also has of wanting to strike out on his own and prove that he's good in and of himself. And so there's this tension back and forth the whole movie. But it's in the final fight, at the end of the movie, the true motive of everything he has done the whole movie comes out. He's in the corner in the middle of the fight. And Rocky says, look, you've done enough. Let's just end it here. And he says, no, i got to prove it. And Rocky says, prove what? you got no, nothing to prove. And it's the most, I got chills when I saw it. He said, i got to prove I'm not a mistake. And it's in that moment that you see that the overriding motive and drive in Adonis Johnson his whole life has been the fact that he was an illegitimate child. I gotta prove that I'm not a mistake. I think what Paul would say and what he's trying to sum up here at the beginning of this passage is that that drive, that hole is in all of our souls. And we will do anything to prove that we're not mistakes. Paul's whole point here in verses 9 through 20 is none of us in and of ourselves are right with God. And though we try, nothing in us can make us right with God. Therefore, we need something outside of us to make us right with God. Which brings us to number two. Imputed righteousness. So the summary statement that Paul makes at first is that we, in and of ourselves, possess impotent righteousness. 
A righteousness that falls short. But then he says, but now, but now, God himself has dealt with that. There's an imputed righteousness. There's a righteousness that's put on us, that's credited credited to us. There's this righteousness, something that makes us right with God. It's been manifested for us by God himself. Okay, verse 23, he, he drives his summary point again that, that there's no distinction, we all fall short. Verse 24 then, though, he says, but, but, we are justified freely by His grace as a gift. There's two big words, there's two big words I want to hone in for you, hone in with you um, on that help us understand this idea of imputed righteousness. The first one is justification. Justification. He doesn't use the word justification. He uses the word justified, right? But it's actually interesting. In this passage, every time you see the word righteousness or justified, it's actually the same word in the Greek. Okay? So in these verses, what Paul is saying is we're not right. We're not justified. And by works, we can't right ourselves. We can't justify ourselves. But there is a rightness... A justification from God through faith. So by His grace, as a gift, we are righted. We are declared righteous. This is a legal or positional term. There's something about our status. We were not right, but now that status has been changed. By God's grace, as a gift, Paul says, now we are right. We are declared right. It's a legal term. The opposite of being justified is to be condemned. Okay? So it's not, about, it's not about something that's changed in us. It's something that's changed about us. Our status is changed. We were on God's wrong side, but now we're on His right side. Here's a helpful way I heard this, this distinction explained. If you tell me something and I ask you to justify that statement, what am I saying? I'm not telling you to change your statement. Right? What I'm telling you or asking you to do is to change that statement's standing with me. Help me believe it. Help me accept it. Right? So if we are justified, it's not that something has changed in us. It's that something has changed about us. God doesn't change us. He changes our relationship to Him. And here's another step in understanding exactly what Paul's getting at here. This is so much more than forgiveness. You've got to hear this. This is so much more than forgiveness. Courtroom. A courtroom is a perfect picture to help us understand this. Think about it. To be condemned is not to be punished, right? To be condemned is to have your status um, defined as deserving punishment, Right? To be condemned doesn't mean to punish, but it means to declare one guilty, to declare one guilt, uh, deserving of punishment. Now, if you pardon someone, when you pardon someone, it means that their sins or their wrong, though they are their sins or their wrong, you're saying that those sins will not be held against them. When a criminal is pardoned, you're not saying that criminal is innocent. You're just saying that that criminal will not have to pay for their crimes. Right? But if in court... You are justified. You are declared to be not guilty. 
You're declared to be not deserving of punishment. Not only are you not deserving of punishment, you're deserving of praise for being cleared, for being not guilty, for being innocent. Get this, the power of this righteousness revealed and gifted to us is not only are we forgiven because we're unrighteous, but we're justified, we're declared righteous. We're looked upon and treated and accepted as if we are righteous. Why is this distinction so important? This is why this distinction is so important. Because it is immediately the thing that we always forget. Get this. It's immediately the thing we always forget. We come to God. We believe God. We believe the gospel. We follow God. But it doesn't take too long, if you're self-aware at all, right, before you find that your resolve to follow God, to obey God, to do right, whatever, is kind of just as weak as it was before. And then you find yourself struggling with things in the same exact ways that you struggled with them before. And you think to yourself, man, I must not really have believed or I must not have really followed Jesus or here I am I, you know, and I've gotten away from God. So what am I going to do to make it right again? But here's the point that Paul is making. You didn't do anything to make it right in the first place. He did. You can't do anything to make it right. You struggle with insecurity. You struggle with lack of assurance. You struggle with resolve to obey. You struggle with being on fire, with being sold out. Whatever term you want to put on it, any youth retreat that you've been on that wants you to be any of those things, you struggle with those things because you think your status or your acceptance with God is up to you. And that's the whole point. Is that it's not. It's not up to you. If it were up to you, that wouldn't be good news. It wouldn't be the gospel because it's not the gospel. Get this. Every other religion, every other system, every other philosophy or ideology is about how you move yourself to being more right in this life. To being more acceptable in this life. Whatever definition of that you have, right? But the beauty of the gospel's answer to that and our failures to meet it is verse 21, but now, what? Not, there's a way for you to move to God. That God has moved toward you. He's accepted you as a gift. He looks at you and He sees you as right. Justification in a nutshell. Here's the thing. How in the world can we know that that's true? How in the world can we know that it's true? Second word to help us understand this. He says it there. Um, wrong page. Verse 25. I don't know if you ever heard of this word. It's a big one. Propitiation. Say it five times fast. Propitiation. Read verses 24 and 25 with me. 
and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Our justification, this thing that I just explained, that we are made right, that God declares us right, it's not done in a vacuum. It's not a waving of the magic spiritual gospel wand. There's actually a reason as to why and how it happens and how and why it's true. Follow the implications, again, of the flow of Paul's argument. From Romans 1.17, there's a, in the gospel a righteousness revealed. 1.18 and following, we are unrighteous and deserving of God's judgment because of ungodliness. Chapter 2, we're unrighteous and deserving of judgment because of our self-made righteousness. Verses, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, there's not one thing that you can do to make yourself righteous. But, now we're told... God has gifted a righteous standing to people who have no claim to one. Follow it. He has justified the unjust. He has righteous the unrighteous. That's what we're told. Go back to the courtroom with me. But this time you're in the courtroom with me. Because I totaled your car. Okay? Follow me here. I think this is brilliant. Anyway. um, (laughs) That'll help you follow me. Uh, This time we're in the courtroom because I totaled your car. But we're fine. We're still friends. You know that I love you and I didn't mean it. And I know that you love me and you don't hold it against me, right? But we're in court just to deal with all the ramifications of the fact that I uh, totaled your car. Not only are we still friends, but the judge is actually a good friend of both of us. We're all friends. In this courtroom, okay? And this judge, this friend of ours, he says, he looks at the case, he looks at us, he thinks about all of our relationships, and he says, look, it's okay. You know that Elliot didn't mean it. You're okay. You don't hold it against him. Y'all are still friends. It's okay. We don't even have to do anything. Everybody have a nice day. Now, what would I say to that? I would say, (laughs) awesome. But what would you say? What about my car? Right? Here it is. There's two ways to look at that example. One, you could say, man, that judge was so loving. He justified Elliot. He made Elliot right. Elliot was wrong, and he made Elliot right. And everybody's still friends, and he declared Elliot not guilty, and we're just so blessed to have such a loving judge. Or, which is more likely the case, you would say, that judge is not qualified to sit on the bench because justice was perverted in his courtroom today. What about my car? So be honest. If it came to your car, you would want a just judge. Would you not? One of the most fear-inspiring truths, biblical fear, fear-inspiring truths that we can believe is that this God is the holy, perfect, just judge of the universe. But at the same time, 
one of the most awe-inspiring and love-inspiring truths that we can believe is that God is the holy and perfect and just judge. How is that? Propitiation. Still haven't defined it for you. Propitiation. That's the answer. How can God be the just and the justifier? How can God bestow righteousness on the unrighteous yet still be righteous himself? How can, if we have all sinned and if we all fall short, how can we be justified freely by his grace as a gift? Propitiation. Propitiation. It literally means, and you're not going to like this, to turn away or to satisfy anger. To turn away or satisfy or appease even anger. Paul says that we are justified freely as a gift, not because it's free, but because it costs and Jesus paid all of it. That's how we're justified. That is how a holy and perfect and righteous judge can make unrighteous people righteous. Not because it's free, but because it costs everything and Jesus paid it all. He's redeemed us. We read there in 24. He's redeemed us. He paid up. He's put forward as a propitiation, an appeasement. He took the wrath and the judgment we deserve. By His blood, He does this. He paid it with His blood. He satisfied justice with His blood. Now here it is. This is what Paul's been saying. Paul's been saying not, not only is our problem sin, but our problem is God's just judgment, His wrath against sin, and therefore against us. If God is love without justice, then we are just as hopeless as if He were just justice without love. But here it is. At the cross in Jesus Christ, love and justice come perfectly together once and for all. And here is, this is, this is precisely how and why propitiation is different than the primitive appeasement of the gods. I don't know if you're familiar with Greek mythology and the Trojan War, but, you know, Agamemnon, he has to sail the sea from Greece to Troy to take his wife, Helen, back as she ran off with Paris, um, who, you know, he had to be a pretty boy if his name was Paris. Um, as he's sailing there with his fleet to make war with Troy, the winds hold his fleet up. They make no progress. And so he sends back home for his daughter. You know why he sends back home for her? So he can sacrifice her to the gods to appease their hostility so they will let him go on to Troy. And apparently it works. Sacrifices his daughter. And it pays off and favorable winds blow and his fleet reaches Troy. How could any sort of thing like that have anything to do with this God? But I hope you see this, and I hope it's not too hard to see. That what we are being told about here is not some primitive propitiation. 
where we purchase some of God's favor for a time or where God does something that otherwise he was unwilling to do. Now, what we get here is gospel propitiation. How does that work? Follow me. God's own great love propitiates his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. Thus God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Paul puts it elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 5.21 in this way, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That is how God can righteous the unrighteous without compromising His own, un, his own righteousness. And it's all according to His great love. Why is Jesus put forward as a propitiation? God put Him forward as a propitiation. Imputed righteousness. End with this. Imparted righteousness. Because if you were paying attention at all, you might have caught something. Look at verse 31. But then actually, let me take you back to verse 20 where Paul says, By works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In verse 31 he says, So do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. Justification isn't something in us, but it's something about us. But what Paul is going to go on to tell us later in this letter is that when something changes about us by God's grace it begins to produce something in us. He puts it there in 27 through 31. We're defined by humility and not boasting. Unity and not elitism. Law-keeping and not law-breaking. How is that? Here it is. Because what I have done, what I do, and what I will do is not the basis of my acceptance with God. My acceptance, which is full and free, is the basis on all that I do. What I have done, what I do, and what I will do is not the basis of my acceptance. My acceptance, full and free, is the basis and foundation of what I do. Ernest Gordon was a POW in World War II in the Pacific. And he uh, was part of a group of prisoners. They had to work a railroad that was called Death Railroad. The statistics, uh, the conditions were so bad that 1 to 2,000 died for every 5 miles of this road that they worked and traveled. It's recorded in a book called Miracle on the River Kwai. And Ernest Gordon recounts that all the men, because of the desperate conditions, were at each other's throats. And this is how he put it. Follow me here. It says, death was everywhere. And as conditions worsened, our lives became poisoned by selfishness, hate, and fear. Formerly, we had huddled together because of our fears, believing there was safety in numbers. 
We had still shown some consideration for one another. But now that was gone. Existence had become so miserable that nothing mattered except to survive. We lived by the rule of the jungle, the evolutionary law of the survival of the fittest. It was a case of I look out for myself and to hell with everyone else. Everybody was his own keeper. All the restraints of morality were gone. But one afternoon, something happened. A shovel was missing at the end of the day. The officer in charge was enraged. He demanded the shovel be reproduced or else. And when no one volunteered that he had taken the shovel, the officer took out his gun and threatened to kill everyone on the spot unless someone stepped forward. And one man stepped forward. I took it, he said. The officer put away his gun, picked up a shovel, and beat the man to death on the spot. Later that day, at the second tool check, This time, the count recorded that there actually was no shovel missing. There had been a miscount at the first check. The word spread like wildfire through the camp. An innocent man had been willing to die to save everyone else. The incident had a huge effect. We began to treat each other like brothers. Death was still with us, no doubt about that. But we were slowly being freed. From its destructive grip. I love that. It's powerful right? And it's a story about an innocent man. Dying for other innocent men. If you read what Paul is saying here for yourself. And you realize the full weight of what he's saying. You have to ask yourself. Do you believe that this is true? Not only do you believe it's true. Do you believe. That it could be true of you. Because the thing is. Is if it is true. And if you believe it. What Paul is saying. Is that it changes. Everything. It really does. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father oh that we. Would believe. That there's something that we need. And there's something that's been attained for us. And given to us. And made true of us. And it's nothing we can do. It's nothing we can feel. It's nothing we can change. But everything He did. Everything He felt. And everything He changed. Would we know that truth tonight? Would it set us free? Would it change us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.